Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. And you know, if you're in his class and are wondering why he's not up here and I am, because he's a guest speaker. Um, our guest speaker is uh, Dr. Michael Munger. He's a professor of political science at Duke University. His primary research focuses on the functioning of markets, regulation, and government institutions. He has a BA in economics from Davidson College and MA and PhD in economics from Washington University in St. Louis. He's currently at Duke University, in addition to previous faculty positions at Dartmouth College, University of Texas, and University of North Carolina. He worked as a staff economist at the Federal Trade Commission during the first Reagan administration. Why are you bringing up old stuff? <laughs> Just to point out how old you are. Thanks. Um, he's a, also a past president of the Public Choice Society, previously served as North American editor of the journal Public Choice, and he's currently co-editor of the Independent Review. He's published over 200 articles and papers in professional and academic journals, including prestigious outlets such as American Political Science Review, Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, Economic Inquiry, and Public Choice. His lecture right now is titled, Good Industrial Policy is Impossible. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Munger to Kanesoski. So hey, thanks. That was hurtful. Um, I want to start out with giving just a verbal argument to get y'all on the same page about how there is what constitutes the argument for capitalism. Now, this argument may be wrong. There may be other systems that are better, but I want you to understand what the argument for capitalism is. And one way to think of it is three concentric circles. The biggest concentric circle is exchange. What is the, uh, having a sound effect is excellent. Exchange, <laughs> bah, bah. What's the argument for exchange? Why is exchange good? Sir? Uh, just to, like, one person gets a good and another gets the profits from a good. Well, but maybe we're just exchanging goods. Sure. So why is it good? Why, why is it useful? Um, you get some, each person gets something they didn't have before. Pre preach! Yes, you both get something you want. If it's voluntary, if it's voluntary, both parties are better off. And with the same amount of stuff. Both parties are better off in the same amount of stuff. In the world, stuff is in the wrong place. I have stuff you want, you have stuff I want. If we could exchange it, we'd be better off but have the same amount of stuff. So we want to try to promote exchange. Now, I used a word there 
that sort of slips a lot in, and it was voluntary. How do I know if an exchange is voluntary? If I hold a gun to your head, it's not voluntary. What if you're starving and you really need the thing and I have food? Is that voluntary? Suppose you're really hungry and you go to Chick-fil-A to buy stuff. You're really, really hungry. You'll actually probably die if you don't get food within the next hour. Is that a voluntary exchange? Are there any other restaurants you should be asking yourself? Yes. Yes, there are. If there's a bunch of other restaurants and competition is disciplining the ability of Chick-fil-A to take advantage of your desperation, yes, that's a voluntary exchange. Now, it would not be a voluntary exchange if Chick-fil-A is the only source of food on earth and they're able to exploit their knowledge of your desperation. So you can see why having many possible sources to acquire the things that I need, and if I'm a seller, having many possible people to produce and provide stuff to, those conditions are met, economists at least are probably going to say that things are voluntary. Now, I have tried to create, I'm in the political science department, even though my PhD is in economics. I was catechized as an economist, but I have long been apostate from the path of truth. So I have created a word called U-voluntary exchange, E-U-voluntary, U-voluntary exchange, meaning well or truly. And if you Google U-voluntary, you'll find a lot of things by me. That's a bad sign. If it actually had caught on, there'd be things by other people. But you'll find a lot of things by me about truly voluntary exchange. So I've tried to problematize the idea of voluntarity. So, the first, biggest concentric circle is voluntary exchange. That's the first part of the argument for capitalism. The second, slightly smaller concentric circle, which is contained in the first, is markets. Now, markets are actually hard to define. Markets are a set of institutions for reducing the transactions cost of impersonal exchange. Markets are a set of institutions for reducing the transaction cost of impersonal exchange. I've already made an argument for why exchange is good. Impersonal exchange means that I can increase the set of people that I'm allowed to cooperate with because the transaction cost of doing that are relatively low. So what would be examples of things that make a market then? Institutions for reducing the transaction cost of impersonal exchange. Some kind of currency. Because as we said, if we're exchanging goods, that's hard. So the problem with barter is it requires a double coincidence of wants, a double coincidence of wants. I have something you want, but you have to have something I want before we can exchange. If we both have money, then we can exchange things for money. A system for defining and adjudicating property rights, a police force, a financial system for borrowing, all of those things are probably part of markets. The third and smallest concentric circle is capitalism. That is, capitalism is a subset of exchange, is a subset of markets. There are market systems that are not capitalist. A big example of that is China. China is a market system, but it's not capitalist. China has a lot of institutions for reducing the transaction cost of impersonal exchange. And notice that impersonal is important there. It's not that I can only buy from people that I know and trust. There have to be some other mechanism of creating 
trust, the ability to assure the other person that I will carry out my promises. And usually economists say that that's something like brand name, some kind of depreciable capital asset, which if I violate our agreement, I'll lose what in effect is a financial hostage. All right, capitalism then. Not everyone would have walked down front. You're a good man. No, it, it, it's, that's terrific. Capitalism is a smaller subset of markets. Capitalism is a set of institutions for borrowing against future profits and creating what economists call, and this is a magical thing, liquidity. The characteristic of capitalism is the ability to create liquidity. So the difference between liquidity and a capital structure is that if I see a factory, that's capital. But it's really hard to transform that into something else. Liquidity is capitalism, is capital in the raw. It can be translated into almost anything. So the ability to raise liquid capital is what characterizes capitalism. China cannot do this. China does not have a set of financial institutions where it can generate liquidity. You can have a meeting in Silicon Valley, 20 minutes, and they'll say, yeah, we'll give you $10 million for that. You can have an initial public offering and work it through Wall Street and raise $100 million. China does not have the corporate form of ownership. What they have instead is a more authoritarian system where in order to have capital, you have to get it from the government. Now, there's some advantages from that, but China is a market system with institutions for reducing the transactions cost of impersonal exchange, but it's not a capitalist system where you have private liquidity that you can direct at profit opportunities. Now, I just said one more thing that's important, which is profit opportunities. Why is that important? Well, I can tell you. It works like this. I start out and I go into input markets. It's weird. He just walked across the whole way. It's different now. He's on the other side. I go into input markets and I execute a bunch of voluntary contracts. So I buy labor. I rent labor. I buy steel, electricity, plastic, all of the inputs that I need. Now, in each of those input markets, I'm probably competing against other buyers from those inputs. So we know that those are voluntary exchanges. I make every one of those input suppliers better off. I make every one of those input suppliers better off. How do I know? Otherwise, they would not have entered the contract because they have other opportunity cost uses of those resources. I then go and in my factory, I combine all of those inputs into a product which I sell in output markets. And I sell it in output markets to consumers. And those consumers buy the thing voluntarily. They only buy it if it makes them better off. Now, we have a measure in economics. If you had a microeconomics course, what is the measure of how much a consumer is made better off by purchasing some product. What's called consumer surplus. Consumer surplus is the difference between what I would pay and what I have to pay. How do we measure that? 
no chance. We have no idea how to measure that. But it's really important. That's what drives the capitalist economy. I make this stuff and consumers all buy it. If consumer buys this voluntarily, what do I know about their value for that thing compared to the price that I'm charging? It's got to be more. It's got to be more. And it may be a lot more. Like you're starving and you go to Chick-fil-A, you would pay a million dollars. And one of those really terrific sandwiches with the waffle fries, that's seven bucks and you get a drink. So your consumer surplus from that transaction is really big. <clears throat> All right, so I sell this in output markets. Now, I use the money that I get from the sale in the output markets to pay off my liabilities in the input market. So there's a, I bought a bunch of inputs, I combine them and I sell them in the output market so I have revenues. If the revenues exceed the costs, there's a particular special high-valued price in the capitalist system called profits. Its twin is loss. If we are conducting business in the way that I've been talking about, and I make profits, what do we know about the social value of the activity I'm engaging in? It's positive. We need more of it. If I'm making profits and all of the input contracts and output contracts are voluntary and I'm making profits, it means that people are willing to pay more for this than it costs to make it. We should do more of that. On the other hand, if I'm making losses, it means it costs more to make this thing than it does, than consumers are willing to pay for it. Now, when I say it costs more, it sounds like I'm talking about money. I'm not. When I say it costs more, I'm saying it uses more resources. Money is what we use to measure the value of resources that go into producing this thing. So if I'm making a loss, I'm using up more resources than I'm creating in terms of value. If I'm making profit, I'm creating more value than I'm using up in resources. What I just described is the industrial policy of capitalism. That's the industrial policy of capitalism. Industrial policy is a set of government actions that encourage some industries and discourage others. It encourages some industries and discourages others. Capitalism has an industrial policy. It encourages industries that are making profits. We should do more of that. It discourages industries that are making losses. We should do less of that. Now, all that by way of introduction, the idea of an industrial policy, it's like in one of those Terminator movies this really strong thing and you think you've killed it, you didn't kill it. It's coming back. I mean, you may have burned it, you may have had a nuclear bomb, it's still coming back. So the idea that the industrial policy of capitalism is not the best we can do is the basis of what most people mean by we should have an industrial policy. Now there's two great schisms in current American politics. Many of you know of the kind of schism or split between conservatives and libertarians. 
So libertarians tend to be concerned about having small government. A lot of conservatives want to increase the size of government in a variety of ways. And since 2016, that has really taken off. There's a big split between conservatives and libertarians. However, on the left, there seems to be an increasing split between liberalism, and I should be careful. What I mean is liberalism in the way we mean it in the United States. Liberalism in Europe or South America means pro-markets. Liberalism in the United States is a particular version of protection of individuals and individual differences in beliefs, character, styles of living. So it reveres democracy, sometimes to a fault, and often defines democracy as naive majoritarianism. So that's the American version of, of liberalism. Progressivism is a claim that the progress of science, a continual set of revolutionary reforms, is what politics should be about. So it's related to the Marxist vision of the forever revolution and the early fascist vision of a dominant technocracy, controlling investment, and the quality of humans will be allowed to reproduce. So there's a scientific, the origins of progressivism are in fascism and eugenics, because that was at the time the scientific perspective on which it was based. So Richard, Richard T. Ely, the founder of the American Economic Association, wrote several important books about eugenics. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, the famous progressive, was just openly racist. So it is interesting that this coalition between liberals and progressives is now being tested, and it, it, it's partly being tested because we have a Democrat in power in the presidency. So let me say a little bit more about progressivism. So Richard Ely, in one of his addresses as president uh, of the American Economic Association, said, industrialization leads to much lower death rates, so it allows the survival of feeble persons. What's required is an effort to prevent the reproduction, and this is a quote, of the degenerate classes. The problem is to keep the most unfit from reproduction and to encourage the reproduction of those who are really the superior members of society. The great word is, it should say, no longer natural selection, but social selection. So if you're interested in seeing that part of the evolution of progressivism, this book from Princeton University Press, published by Thomas Leonard, I really recommend it, um, about illiberal reformers. So this was more than industrial policy. This was an entire social policy where the application of science to what had been decentralized processes was what was important. So notice that the story that I told about a capitalist industrial policy, it's sort of naive in a way. It's say we don't know enough to know what consumers want or should want. What we do is we look at what they pay for and things that they want, if it produces more value than it costs to make, that's what we should make. It may turn out to be weird stuff that we, the cognizanti, the trained people, all of the really physically attractive people with PhDs in economics, because we are hot. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but Professor Matthews and I, we have exactly the same hairstyle, so <laughs> that is hot. <clears throat> so the, what really we are contesting here is 
a decentralized process that leads to a kind of agnosticism about value that just relies on profit and loss, or whether we, meaning trained scientists and technocrats, can do better. And I want to claim that trained science and technocrats probably cannot do better, although not for the reason that I used to believe. So this, is, this paper was published a little while ago in the Journal of Law, Economics, and Policy. It was a law journal. And publishing in a law journal is hard because you have to footnote stuff like the sun rose in the west, up east. See, that's why you have to footnote it. The sun rose in the east, and then there's a footnote that, that proves that. <laughs> so it's in the Journal of Law and Economics and Policy, and the contest is between my version of capitalism, which is admittedly imperfect for reasons that we're going to talk about. There's a bunch of problems with it. Compared with, can... In fact, in a democracy, rational technocrats do better. So that's the question I want to ask. So one of the things that liberals and progressives disagree about is the level of aggregation. So this is from Jean-Jacques Rousseau. It's from uh, book four of uh, Du Contrat Social. This is the best question ever asked in the history of political theory. May, may I modestly say that I have identified the best question ever asked in the history of political theory. It is asked how a man can be, ah! The best one. <laughs> I skipped it. It is asked how a man can be both free and forced to conform to wills that are not his own. So that seems like, and forgive, I'm sorry about the gendered part, but that was Rousseau. If I think the speed limit should be 70, but y'all think the speed limit should be 65, and I'm driving, and the cop pulls me over, <clears throat> I can't say, well, I never consented to that. I think the speed limit should be 70. He said, oh, that's great, here you go. Here's your souvenir of your visit to North Georgia. You have to do it whether you consented or not. Does that mean that I'm unfree? Because usually the story that we tell about the source of political authority, what, it, what makes it okay for political authority to use guns to force me to do stuff that I don't want to do is that I consented to the process. So what Rousseau says is, how are the opponents at once free and yet subject to laws they have not agreed to? What's the usual answer to that? Why am I bound by laws that I didn't agree with? It's usually some version of consent. That is, I consented to the laws because I got to vote. Well, I didn't vote for any of the people who were in office. I assure you, I'm a libertarian. I always lose. So I, I, I ran for governor in 2008, got 120,000 120, votes, uh, which is actually quite a few, but still it was 3%. And I pretty quickly found out that it was not because I didn't have enough money, it's just that people disagree with me. Does that mean I'm wrong? Does that mean I'm wrong to the extent that I should, not be, I should be prevented from expressing my views? Now remember, I'm asking this in the context, I was running for office. I was in four televised debates with Pat McCrory and Bev Perdue. 
the next two governors of North Carolina. So I was given a fair shot. I just sucked. I lost fair and square. Well, the usual answer is some kind of consent. And what people often would say was, if you don't consent to the speed limits, don't use the roads. That's the sort of consent that we're talking about. If you don't agree with the speed limits, don't use the roads. If you're driving on the road, you're implicitly consenting to the speed limit. Well, Rousseau said, I retort that the question is wrongly put. The citizen gives his consent to all the laws, including those which are passed in spite of his opposition, and even those which punish him when he dares to break any of them. When in the popular assembly, as law is proposed, what the people is asked is not exactly whether it approves or rejects the proposal, whether it is in conformity with the general will, which is their will. When, therefore, the opinion that is contrary to my own prevails, this proves neither more nor less than that I was mistaken, and that which I thought to be the general will was not so. If my particular opinion had carried the day, I should have achieved the opposite of what was my will, and it is in that case I should not have been free. So government should do what the people want if the people were smarter and more altruistic. People don't actually know what they want, but the government does. And that's what the government should do. This seems disquieting. Because there's both sort of a nod to democracy and yet also not so much, a kind of recipe for tyranny. So well, let, me, let me ask this. In a Rousseauvian democracy, how many parties are there? Solamente uno. No necesitamos más. That'll be plenty. One party's plenty to represent the will of the people. In fact, if you had a second party, that would mean treason. There's a bunch of countries that have one party for just that reason. And in fact, if you oppose the party, you are either a traitor or an insane person. You will either go to an insane asylum or jail, and it's hard to tell the difference. Now, that's not the way Americans tend to think about this, because a lot of us are liberals. This is an important strain of progressivism, is my point. If we want to find out what to do, the last thing we would want to do is to ask the people. We should just tell the people what they should do. And to be fair, I don't know much about drugs or medical policy. I'm not an expert in those things. I am, however, an expert in some things, and so I value expertise. So should we vote to decide whether we're going to have vaccines, or should we let experts do it? You can see the arguments for why for a lot of very complicated things. Expertise is probably going to do a better job of what the people need. So I'm not saying that this, this kind of idea of progressivism is wrong. The question is, how much of a scope should it be given? Since it is explicitly anti-democratic. So Che Guevara in Men of Socialism in Cuba, 1965. Society as a whole must become a huge school. We can see the new man who begins to emerge in this period of building. His image is as yet unfinished. In fact, it will never be finished. Discounting those whose lack of education makes them tend toward the solitary road, towards the satisfaction of their ambitions, there are others who, even within this new picture of overall advances, tend to march in isolation from the accompanying mass. 
What's more important is that people become more aware every day of the need to incorporate themselves into society and of their own importance as motors of that society. So suppose you think that you individually have views that disagree with most people. The only possible explanation is lack of education, which is the reason that a lot of prisons are called education camps or re-education camps. The only conceivable reason is that you have not yet been sufficiently educated. Unless you think this is not a US phenomenon, the famous progressive John Dewey in Reconstruction and Philosophy said, the state has the responsibility for creating institutions under which individuals can effectively realize the potentialities that are theirs. Okay, so far so good. We want individuals to realize the potentialities that are theirs. While social arrangements, laws, institutions are made for man, these arrangements are not means of obtaining something for individuals, not even happiness. They are means of creating individuals. Individuality in a social and moral sense is something to be wrought out through education. So we know, because we're experts, what you need to do. And if you don't agree, you haven't been educated enough yet. Is a standard approach to this kind of problem of expertise. And John Dewey is one of the foundations of the construction of the American public education system. And again, let me say, this is not wrong. I think it's not right, but it's not wrong. The only question is, what is going to be the scope? I don't want to vote to decide what NASA is going to do. I don't want to vote to decide what sort of new weapons programs the Air Force should have. We don't know enough to vote those things. We have to have experts do it. That's true. But having individuality wrought out, I'm not so sure. Notice that what this would do is create a setting where control of institutional, forgive me, of educational institutions is essential. So because we have pursued this sort of approach where Terry McAuliffe in Virginia famously said, he lost the election in one statement that he made in the debate. I do not think that parents should be involved in deciding what their children learn. We will decide that for them. Actually, no, you won't, because you're going to lose. So the people's response to that, right or wrong, was to be outraged. So deciding what children are going to learn, surely some people are experts in education. Let's suppose you think that is true. Objectively, some people are experts in education. We are going to create a priesthood, a clerisy, a set of experts who are going to be in charge of education. That's going to create what political scientists call a rent-seeking contest for control of who gets to name the Board of Education. If you have a, a clerisy, a priesthood that gets to decide what the law is, you're going to have a giant rent-seeking contest for control of who gets to name people to the Supreme Court. So the way that the control of the Supreme Court happened was it became politicized. It was used to impose a number of things that were not politically popular. The right said, oh, hell no. We're going to grab the means of controlling who's appointed to the Supreme Court, and they did. If you politicize a set 
of experts who are allowed to make decisions against majoritarian impulses, which I think makes sense in many cases. When that happens, it is inevitable that you're going to create a political contest for control of the ability to name those experts, which means that you're right back to politics, except that now it doesn't matter if a majority of people want to change the Supreme Court because it takes forever to change it back. Once you have gathered, once you have grabbed a majority of the experts through political means. <clears throat> so there's at least six different views of this problem of industrial policy. So let me say a little bit about each, and if you're interested in that, you can look up the paper in the Journal of Law, Economics, and Policy. So the industrial policy of capitalism already talked about. It's basically profit and loss. The market failure view of markets basically takes the performance. Did you have a question? The market failure view of markets basically takes markets as a given but points out there are circumstances under which markets perform really badly and that at least in principle, there are means of doing better. So there's, it's usually said there are five kinds of market failures. And if you had a microeconomics class, you might've discussed this. I'll just be brief. One of them is asymmetric information where buyers are less likely to know the qualities of things than sellers. And so the Food and Drug Administration is an example of a government policy that is trying to prevent the sale of drugs that are not safe or effective. So that's asymmetric information. Public goods, where it is impossible for markets to provide public goods at, a, uh, at an optimal level. And so we have things like the Defense Department, which is the canonical example. Nothing? Canonical, Canon, Defense Department, <laughs> y'all are tough. Um, externalities, where things that I do affect you without your permission. So pollution is an example of that. The Environmental Protection Agency is an example of a government action where we try to internalize the costs of external effects. Natural monopoly, or increasing returns to scale which means that we, if we, the efficient industrial structure is going to be just one firm. It doesn't make sense to think about competition. Remember I said that the reason we could trust Chick-fil-A was that their actions are disciplined by competitors. But if there are, if we're talking about electricity, the provision, the actual transmission of electricity is not likely to be very competitive. We're not going to have eight or nine different sets of wires that go to every house. Probably it makes sense to have just one. But if it makes sense to have just one, we're probably going to use something like utilities regulation, where we will use regulation rather than competition to discipline the pricing behavior of these industrial behemoths. And the last is not strictly speaking a market failure, but it's something that people are skeptical about, about the performance of markets, which is income distribution, where the inequalities in income as a result of the capitalist system of profit and loss are so enormous that there's, it's morally unfair, it's politically damaging. So each of those five different categories 
seem as if it would be amenable, at least, to treatment by experts. That is, we would, it would be good to have a set of experts at the Environmental Protection Agency who are trained in environmental policy, who have PhDs in biology and chemistry, who understand the regulation of chemicals. Seems like it would be good to have a set of experts at the Food and Drug Administration who know about what drugs are safe and effective. But those are pretty limited regulations that are involved with specific industries. That's different from industrial policy. This is not, we take markets as given and then we fiddle with them by trying to improve their performance. Industrial policy says capitalism in and of itself is incapable of making the correct judgments because profit and loss don't actually teach us what we would need to know about which industry should expand and which should contract. Well, <clears throat> the public choice counterargument, and I'm a past president of public choice, as was said, so obviously this is my bias. The public choice counterargument would say, you're doing kind of a weird thing there with regulation. With regulation, you're pointing out the existence of market failures. And those market failures are real. You're saying, market failure, therefore the state should act. Does anybody see a problem with that? We haven't talked about a theory of government failure. Is the state going to make things better? Markets fail. There's no question about that. Therefore, this other thing that I can imagine improving things. I'd like to know something about how government acts. Is there a theory of government failure where we could actually make predictions about whether it's going to be better? So. Public choice, in particular, concentrates on two things. Do politicians have sufficient information to be able to make the correct judgments? And second, do they have the incentives to act on that information if they possess it? And public choice people would say, in many cases, no. Some cases, yes. In many cases, no. But at least we would need a theory of government failure. The law and economics counterargument is mostly something you incur, you uh, see in law schools. And Austrian economics is a kind of a defense of profit and loss from a perspective of kind of a priori reasoning. So the, they, they're trying to out neoclassical the neoclassicals. The difficulty with a lot of Austrian economics is that it's not clear what institutional underpinnings would produce the set of market relations that Austrian economists are in favor of. So that was completely inadequate, I realize. But I wanted to give you some idea of the six different kind of schools of industrial policy. Now, my story was, I thought progressives didn't understand public choice. These crazy progressives, they think that they'll just be able to put experts up and they won't be subject to the public choice counter arguments. Boy, aren't they dumb. Not only are they not dumb, they came up with the public choice counterarguments before the public choice people did. So it, it, if you do a little intellectual history, and this, like I said, this is embarrassing, it turns out I was wrong about progressivism. I was just mistaken. So let's, three, let's think of three different categories of industrial policy. So we want to talk about outcomes. So there's three categories of outcomes, O sub P, O sub D, and O sub I. Pattern of investment and economic growth resulting from the profit and loss test, which is the industrial plan of unfettered capitalism, is O sub P. 
The pattern of investment and economic growth resulting from political capitalism or democracy, the result of allowing powerful political interests and rent seeking to direct taxes and subsidies towards industry is O sub D. And the pattern of investment and economic growth envisioned by advocates of a socially optimal industrial plan assuming an omniscient benevolent despot is O sub I. So we're simply. O sub P is the outcome from a profit system, O sub D is the outcome from a democratic system, and O sub I is the outcome from a planned industrial policy, a centrally planned industrial policy to decide what industries we will allow, which we will encourage. So the usual Austrian public choice story is that O sub, B, o sub P is better than O sub D. That is, the system of profit and loss will do better than what you get from what some people would call a cronyist system. So a, a, a difficulty with democracy is that it's not so much one person, one vote. Organized interest groups are likely to have disproportionate power. And some of that is Mansur Olson's theory, uh, logic of collective action and the rise and decline of nations, where interest groups get these kind of set-asides that are economically inefficient, but they're politically efficient because it helps politicians get reelected. And the difficulty is that politicians are not automatically concerned with what's best for the society. They're concerned about what's best for them. And what's best for them is to get reelected. And the way to get reelected is to do the things that people who really care about this policy want, or to do the things that people who will make campaign contributions really want. And so the public choice critique of industrial policy has always been I mean, you realize that political outcomes are going to be really bad. We'd actually be better off with just a system of profit and loss because remember, what is it that disciplines the actions of market participants? It's competition. Well, in a political system, the main thing that powerful economic actors want is to reduce competition. They want entry barriers. They want if you're a drug company, you want patents, and you want patents that continue over long periods with just slight changes so you can continue to charge an exorbitantly high price. If you're an industry that competes with imports, you want quotas and tariffs to prevent competition from coming from abroad. All of those things would benefit consumers. I want to use the government to protect me from competition. So since I can use the government to protect me from competition, political capitalism is going to be worse than capitalism capitalism. So that's the, the public choice critique. <clears throat> the question is why those idiot progressives don't understand that. The shocking thing is they totally do understand that. In fact, they originated the insight in the first place. Industrial policy is not just supposed to improve over markets, it's supposed to improve over politics. Their primary concern was politics. Now, in my 2000 book about public policy, I claim there's three sources of legitimate authority, markets, politics, and experts. And the reason why there's often conflicts among policies or apparent contradictions among policies is that the excluded, well, so, if we're gonna to try to decide about efficiency, experts and markets are going to contest, but politics are likely to have an outside influence and so on. 
So although there are three sources of legitimate authority, the conflicts between this legitimate authority produce different sort of realms of policy. So my claim is that advocates of industrial policy actually, now that I understand, have set themselves a to-do list, which goes something like this. Gain control of the technocratic authority so that the right people head the relevant regulatory agencies. Select the best policies to achieve whatever their dog breakfast of diverse social goals is. And then exclude both politics and market so that only correct thinking technocrats have the standing to decide or even make public statements about industrial policy. What's interesting is that both the right and the left have come to this conclusion. So the, the uh, Trump administration basically has this same to-do to list. So we have seen a breaking up of conservatives off from libertarians, because this is not a libertarian uh, to-do list. And we've seen the breaking off of progressives from liberals, because this is not a liberal to-do list. But conservatives and progressives are fighting a contest politically about who is going to be able to do this. So we're seeing a giant political fight about who gets to name the experts who will have disproportionate power over the economy. Under the, the theory, I think, that they think they'll then win forever. So one of the arguments that I always make is you should never create a political sword that you don't want to see wielded by your worst enemy. You should never create a political sword that you don't want to see wielded by your worst enemy. Because if you create this giant power for government, if you lose the next election, the bad guys are going to do that. So I've proposed what I call the Munger test, because I'm a narcissist. <laughs> the Munger test is, if you think, you know, the state should do and then whatever. Take out the state and put in Donald Trump. I think the state should be in charge of deciding what our children learn in school. I think Donald Trump should be in, in charge of deciding what our children learn in school. And I'm not trying to make a partisan point. Nancy Pelosi. Because there's no such thing as government. There is no such thing as government. Government is people. It's the particular people who win an election in a system dominated by large corporate interests. Is that who you want in charge of this? So this is from the excellent economist. I'm, I'm a big fan, Danny Roderick. The case against industrial policy comes in, in two forms. He is an advocate of industrial policy. He famously wrote a paper uh, that says not why, but how. So the question is not why industrial policy, just how are we going to do it? The case against industrial policy comes in two forms. The first is the government doesn't have the information needed to make the right choices as to which firms or industries to support. The second is that once governments are in the business of supporting this or that industry, they invite rent-seeking and political manipulation by well-connected firms and lobbyists. Industrial policy becomes driven by political rather than economic motives. I contend that the first claim is largely irrelevant. Well, why is it irrelevant? Because he believes in trial and error. He believes that the government should try many different things. And then we'll learn which ones work best. Well, the second about political influence can be overcome with appropriate institutional design. 
Well, I can speak, I think, for all political scientists when I say that we find it charming that economists just say, well, that's just a problem of institutional design. Dude, you're talking about a constitutional change that nobody will vote for except you and your four friends, and three of them are not sure. So no, it's not a question of institutional design. It would be a question of institutional implementation. And the obstacles to that implementation are precisely the same that are blocking you from accomplishing what you wanted in the first place. It's the same obstacle. So good industrial policy does not rely on the government's omniscience or ability to pick winners. Mistakes are an inevitable and necessary part of a well-designed industrial policy program. In fact, too few mistakes are a sign of underperformance. Well, we must be doing great. We're making plenty of mistakes. So Woodrow, and I like that his name was Woodrow, just like Wilson, Ginsburg said, planning agencies would work closely with representatives of business and labor, minorities and women, consumers and environmentalists, regional and community organizations, and other groups which have a vital interest in the successful functioning of our economy. This would be instead of politics. So instead of politics, we'll just have big meetings. Have you ever been to a meeting? We're not going to do anything in meetings. We can do things in elections, because whoever gets a majority, they win. That may be bad, but it's decisive. Meetings are not decisive. So Don Lavoie, uh, George Mason famously responded, in other words, representatives of the very same special interests who now struggle for government failure will still do so under national planning. Why these representatives are expected to reflect the democratic will of the people any better than they do now is not explained. It is actually explained because the mind of the technocrat is capable of performing these trade-offs. I hear all these different arguments and I make a seraphic intuition sort of decision. And people say, yes, said no one ever. Robert Reich, to his credit, the pattern of subsidies and trade protection are largely the result of special interest pressure and not of a coherent industrial policy. They have no rhyme or reason. These subsidies, for the most part, channeled capital towards industries that are selected from international trade. Industries such as footwear and apparel that depend on low-wage labor and industries such as shipbuilding that have no advantage over foreign competitors. In effect, these programs have taken capital away from emerging industries or growing segments of established industries with a real chance to obtain a competitive edge in, the, in world markets. Now, to his credit, he says, this perverse result is largely a function of politics. So he's in favor of industrial policy. What we must do is insulate industrial policy from politics. Well, how's that gonna work exactly? This is the most important quote, and I'm embarrassed that I didn't teach this whenever I taught public choice. This is from 1912. Actually, this is a composite quote. Part of this is from 1930. But this might have been written by F.A. Hayek. In any industry, there is reason to believe that the free play of self-interest will cause an amount of resources to be invested different from the amount that's required in the best interest of the national dividend. There is a prima facie case for public intervention. Fair enough. That's the usual argument for industrial policy. So the free play of self-interest will cause an amount of resources to be invested different 
from the amount that's required in the best interest of the national dividend. So there is a set of investments that are better than what we will get from markets. But then Pagu says, the case cannot become more than a prima facie one until we have considered the qualifications, the qualifications which government agencies may be expected to possess for intervening advantageously in this class of matter. That's the public choice objection. In 1912, James Buchanan wasn't even born until 1919, the founder of public choice. It is not sufficient. Now, sometimes I give people just this quote and ask them who said it. Almost all of them say Friedrich Hayek. This paragraph is as good as anything Friedrich Hayek ever said. It is not sufficient to contrast the imperfect adjustments of unfettered private enterprise with the best adjustments that economists in their studies can imagine. We cannot expect that any state authority will attain or wholeheartedly seek that ideal. Such authorities are liable to ignorance, sectional pressure, and to personal corruption by private interest. A loud-voiced part of their constituents, if organized for votes, may easily outweigh the whole. Now, in the rest of the paper, I make the argument that we either have to give up industrial policy or democracy. We either have to give up industrial policy or democracy. In a liberal society, we really can't give up democracy. And if we do, if we create an authority in charge of making industrial policy, that will become the focus of a gigantic and possibly violent conflict over who gets to control, who gets to name the authority. So that has long been the problem. Democracy is the second best. Liberalism is the second best. It's terrible, except for all the other alternatives. So we're stuck. If we're going to create an industrial policy, Pigou's answer was, we have to create an authority that is beyond the power of the people to answer or respond. So I was wrong. I was wrong. The progressives have totally understood the public choice problem. In fact, they invented it. The difficulty, as far as I can see, is that they follow the logic of that premise about which they're correct to say, and therefore, we have to have a clerisy of experts who are beyond the control of the people because we can rely on them to do the right thing. I will just leave it to you whether you agree with that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.